before you there this morning, Philippians chapter 1. And our focus for study is just the first two verses, uh, Philippians 1 verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you're a fan of costume dramas on the BBC or ITV, maybe Pride and Prejudice or Downton Abbey, uh, you might recall moments in the drama where a letter is read. And often what happens when a letter is read in a costume drama, uh, the person opens it with trembling fingers and they're so nervous and, and the camera sort of takes an angle looking up at them so you can see their facial expression. And as they begin to read the letter, the person who wrote the letter, you can, the character who wrote the letter, You can hear their voice and they read the letter for you as the character on screen reads the letter for themselves. It's usually a very dramatic moment. Dear Gertrude, forgive me that I have taken so long to write and so forth and pray no I love you and all that kind of stuff. And it's a very dramatic moment in the drama, the reading of a letter. And at least it was dramatic to read letters in those days, the days of Downton Abbey or Pride and Prejudice, because it was pretty much the only way you could communicate with someone you cared about. It's very, very hard for us to appreciate today uh, with Snapchat and WhatsApp and all the rest of it. And we send each other clips of every little thing that happens every day, all day. But just try to imagine being separated from a loved one or from a friend and you can't pick up the phone to them. You can't just... Hear how their day has gone any time you like. You have to wait for days or weeks to hear anything at all. And then finally, a letter, some news, some encouragement. A precious reminder of the special relationship you have with this person. Well, if you can imagine that feeling of of receiving a letter like that, then you begin to enter into the situation for the church in Philippi. Receiving a letter from the Apostle Paul in the early 60s AD. Uh, Paul himself along with Silas and most likely Timothy and Luke. uh, They had planted this church in Philippi 10 years ago. And as we read earlier in the book of Acts. After a night in prison Paul and Silas were forced to leave the city of Philippi. They were were badly beaten. They were badly mistreated. and And in the morning after that. After all the events that take place in the prison cell. Uh, they move on to Thessalonica. If Paul had been able to go back to Philippi at all after that, he probably only ever went back once or twice in his life, if he even got to go at all. And now when he writes this letter, we believe he's in Rome. He's under house arrest because of trumped up charges that the Jews have brought against him. You can read about that at the end of the book of Acts. And Paul's future is far from certain. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. We've seen already, I trust you you noticed in our reading today, we'll see it virtually every week as we read this letter, uh, this deep affection that existed between Paul and the Philippians. And so what a joy it must have brought them to receive this encouraging, affectionate, albeit challenging letter from Paul. But of course, this is not just a a lovely letter written a long time ago. It has been, it's, it's writing that has been supernaturally provided for us by God, the Holy Spirit. It's a letter with teaching, with commands, with encouragement, with challenges, 
that still apply to us today. It's a letter urging Christians in whatever time and place we find ourselves, whatever circumstances we're in, it's a letter urging us to press on in our faith with joy. And that's really our theme for this whole series, press on with joy. Philippians has been described as the the lightest or the friendliest, you might say, of Paul's letters. And it certainly is in many ways. But that's not to say it's not a a deeply challenging letter, that it's not a a thought-provoking and heart-searching letter. The church in Philippi was a strong church, but it wasn't a perfect church, as no local church is. And at the heart of this letter is a challenge from Paul to Philippi then, and to us today, to press on in our work and witness. Not to, to rest on our laurels, so to speak, but to keep going in the face of whatever challenges we face. To, If we need to, to rediscover our joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. <coughs> and so those are all themes that we'll be coming back to in the weeks ahead. I want to look today just at the, the opening greeting of the letter in verses 1 and 2. And so we'll think about the author of the letter, the recipients of the letter, and the greeting of the letter. So first of all, we think about the author. And the author, of course, is Paul. And Paul here, I want you to notice, describes himself as Christ's servant. The author of this letter is Christ's servant. Uh, Paul, on one level, begins this letter in the standard style of his day. Uh, The way that they began letters in those days made a lot more sense than the way that Letters have been written in our, in our culture. You began the letter by giving your name, the people that you were writing to, and then the greeting. And that makes a lot more sense than the way people used to write, dear whoever, and you might not hear who the letter's from until the very end. Uh, but that's what, that's what they did in these days. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, grace and peace. And yet Paul's greeting is, is far from ordinary. Uh, notice the opening words. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. We'll think more about Timothy in later weeks. He, he comes up again later in the, in the letter. At this point, we believe he's, he's clearly with Paul in Rome. Uh, and he, he had played an important part in the ministry in Philippi as well. But this is Paul's letter. And from verse 3 onwards, he's talking in the first person. I thank my God in all my remembrance and so on. So it's Paul's letter. But he describes both himself and Timothy at the beginning as servants of Jesus Christ. The word there for servants, it's it's footnoted in the ESV that it could also be translated slaves or bond servants. Bond servants. In the ancient world, a bond servant or a slave was the property, the legal property of their master. The will of the master entirely dictated the tasks, the plans, the day-to-day activities of the bondservant. Your time was not your own. Your day was not your own if you were a bondservant. If the master wanted his breakfast at seven in the morning, well, the bondservant better be up early enough to have it ready. If halfway through the morning, the master decided that he wanted his lunch at half twelve instead of one o'clock, the bondservant better drop whatever he was doing and start getting the lunch ready. The bond servant, friends, was not his own person. His life was defined by doing the will of his master. 
And that's how Paul, the, the great apostle, the great church planter, maybe the greatest missionary in the history of Christianity, that's how he describes himself to the Philippians. I am a servant, a slave, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, my King. In fact, the whole reason Paul had ended up in Philippi, the reason this church existed, we might say, was precisely because Paul had been obedient to the will of his master. We read earlier from Acts chapter 16 how Paul and Silas had been trying to go to other places with the gospel. They'd been going to <laughs> they'd been traveling through what we know today as Turkey, and they had looked at various regions and thought, should we go there? Should we go there? And the Holy Spirit, in whatever way, we're not quite told, but the Holy Spirit had been shutting the doors. Hadn't been letting Paul or Silas go to these other places. And then eventually Paul receives this vision of a man in Macedonia calling to him. Asking him to come over and help. And so Paul and, his, and the men with him had faithfully gone into Europe. And preached the gospel in a European city perhaps for the first time. All in obedience to the will of his master King Jesus. Friends, Paul's description of himself here is a description of every true Christian. We're no longer slaves of sin or of Satan, but we are now slaves or servants of King Jesus. Our lives don't belong to us, they belong to someone else. Paul says elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, You are not your own, you were bought with a price. Now, of course, to be a servant of Christ is wonderful. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. The yoke being that heavy implement that you would put on the oxen to keep the oxen going in the right direction. So Jesus does tell us, friends, that there's a yoke, that we come under his mastery. But he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a joy. It's a privilege. It's the greatest position to be in the world, to be a servant of Jesus Christ. You have the most godly the most beautiful the most sympathetic master in the world but we do have a master nonetheless and we should remember day to day friends that we are his servants that our life's purpose is to obey christ to live for christ to allow the priorities of christ and his word to be the priorities of our lives too This was how Paul and Timothy saw themselves. In some of his other letters, Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ. And that, of course, was his office in the church. Some of us here today hold the office of pastor or the office of deacon. Paul held the office of apostle, a unique office that has now since died away, but a very important office. And in some of his letters, Paul does choose to remind the people that he's writing to Of his authority as an apostle. But to the Philippians. Paul greets them in an expression of great humility. A servant of Christ Jesus. And that's perhaps because later in the letter. He's going to make demands of the Philippians. Demands that they themselves will need humility to carry out. And perhaps with that in mind. Paul himself demonstrates humility here. At the beginning of the letter and describing himself as a servant of Jesus. 
One whose life is entirely at the disposal of his Lord and Master. Wonder is that an accurate description of your life this morning? Before you would describe yourself as anything else, would you describe yourself as a servant, a joyful, willing, thankful servant of Jesus Christ? So many people in our culture today hate the idea that their lives belong to anyone or anything else, or that they might have to live under someone else's authority. (coughs) We're living in one of the most silly, self-centered generations in our nation's history. You can't tell me how to live. I have a right to this and a right to that. And I'll tell my truth and not the truth. Well, the truth is that we're all servants of someone. We're either servants of sin and Satan in whatever form that may take. Or we are servants of Jesus Christ. Many people today, friends, they're slaves to to self. This imagined God that they've made out of their own lives. I'll serve myself. I'll get money for myself. I'll get status for myself. I'll get influence for myself. Some people, of course, are enslaved in, in, uh, in more drastic ways to, to alcohol, to drugs, to, to food. Some people are, are enslaved to their work. Some people are enslaved to their family. They, they, they can't say no to anything their family might ask of them. We're all enslaved to someone or something, friends. And ultimately, if we, if we live with the notion that I am no one's master, that I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my own soul, it's one of Satan's greatest tricks to have us thinking in that sort of way. And ultimately, if we are living for ourselves, thinking that we're not accountable or we're not servants of anyone else, we're headed for misery. Jesus Christ talks about the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And if that's all we're living for, friends, we will find ourselves empty and sorrowful and purposeless. But if you have experienced forgiveness for your sins, if by God's grace your trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for you through his death on the cross, then you're a servant of the King, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has implications for everything you do, everything you say, every decision you make for yourself, for your family, your church, your future. Boys and girls and young adults, if Christ is your master, it influences what you plan to do with your weekends or your relationships or your extended holiday times. If we're servants of Christ, friends, it influences how we spend this first day of the week, the Lord's Day. If we're servants of Christ, it influences our speech, how we talk to each other in our homes or in our workplaces, how we talk about each other. Our parenting is to be seen as an act of service to Christ. Hoovering the church carpet is an act of service to Christ. Working as a civil servant or a teacher or a shop worker or whatever it is, is an act of service to Christ. Paul could point to a long list of achievements, to his authority as an apostle even. But instead, he humbly says, I am a slave. I belong to Jesus Christ. Do you belong to him? Are you devoted to serving him? 
Is this gladly what you see as your chief identity? So the author of this letter is a servant of Christ Jesus. Then there's the recipients of this letter. And they are saints of Christ Jesus. The recipients of this letter, of course, are the believers, the church in Philippi. And Paul describes them as saints in Christ Jesus, verse 1. Uh, And just notice particularly what he says there, in fact, in verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Once a year, a list of the most desirable places to live in Northern Ireland is published. I'm not sure if Dremore County Down has made the list yet, but maybe someday. But had there been such a list for the region of Macedonia in 60 AD, Philippi would probably have ranked as number one. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colonial city. So if you were born there, you were born into Roman citizenship. You remember how helpful Paul's Roman citizenship was to him several times in the book of Acts, including, in fact, if we'd read on in Acts chapter 16, in Philippi, we would have have seen that Paul made use of it. Philippi was proud of its Roman identity. Uh, In fact, the citizens of Philippi purposefully tried to make the city feel more like Rome. Even the architecture of the city was based in Roman architecture. The, The layout of the streets of the city was an imitation of some parts of Rome as well. And the, the citizens of Philippi spoke, or spoke Latin, the, the, the Roman language, instead of Greek. So to be a Philippian citizen was to be a Roman citizen with all the, the dignity and respect that went with it. It was also a very wealthy city. It had many of the perks of Roman advancement and Roman modern living. It was located on a major Roman road, the Via Ignatia, a gateway to Asia and the world beyond. And that being said, friends, most Philippians were proud to be Philippians or Romans. And they would have told you so. And so they sort of lived with the best of both worlds. They could have their Philippian identity. If people wanted, they could have their Greek identity. But they could also have their Roman identity. Just like in Northern Ireland, we have this harmonious little place where you can pick and choose your identity and and that's fine and, and, and nothing more said about it. But notice, friends, Paul doesn't call his readers Philippians. He calls them the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And just notice in passing, he also mentions the overseers and deacons. Overseers there being another word for elders or pastors. And so we should note in passing, that's the normal biblical pattern for churches to be led by elders and deacons. Uh, but the, the overarching point here is that Paul refers to all the believers in Philippi as saints. Whether you're in church office or not, Paul says, you're saints who happen to be in Philippi. The word saints there, friends, it means set apart. Set apart. Something or someone distinct from or different from what's around them. It's also translated as holy ones elsewhere in scripture. Now the average Christian man or woman today probably doesn't often think of themselves as a saint. If you were to introduce yourself to someone and say, 
you know, I'm, I'm Philip and I'm a saint, they probably think, well, he's got big ideas about himself. Um, and that's largely because of the tradition of Roman Catholicism, because in the Roman Catholic tradition, the word saint is sort of a, a title reserved for some kind of super Christian uh, like Patrick or Augustus, Augustine or whoever it may be. Some of the great leaders in church history get called saints and nobody else does. But that's not how the word saint is used in the Bible, friends. Paul uses this word more than 40 times in his letters, not to describe some special class of Christian, but to describe all Christians. It's a word that means that, it's a word that does not mean that you are a perfect person. It's a word that means that you are a set apart person, set apart by Jesus Christ to live a different kind of life, a holy life. In service to him. And it's interesting that that's the the way that Paul describes these people here. These people who were probably quite proud to be Philippians. To be Romans. Who were proud and and glad and, and valued having that national identity that they could rely upon. But friends, Paul is challenging them here right at the beginning of the letter. Don't forget who you really are. Don't forget who you really are. Don't forget where you really belong. You live in this city of Philippi, this Roman city, but you don't truly belong to Philippi. Its religion isn't your religion. Its moral standards aren't necessarily your moral standards. It's Lord, Caesar, is not your ultimate Lord. And that was probably the the main religion in Philippi was emperor worship. As long as you said Caesar is Lord, you could do whatever else you liked. Paul says, not for you. You're set apart. You're saints of a different Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lydia, one one of the first converts perhaps in Philippi. Here's Paul saying to Lydia, you're not just a, a Philippian businesswoman, Lydia. You're a set-apart businesswoman who happens to live in Philippi. The jailer, even if he did stay in his job after his conversion, uh, he's not to act like a, a British, thuggish, typical Roman jailer anymore. He's a set-apart jailer living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Alec Matier, who's written an excellent commentary in Philippians, He says about the word saints, Paul is not concerned with what the Philippians are by nature in this world, but with what they are by grace in the sight of God. He says it was an honor to be a citizen of Philippi, but it was honor of honors that that the holy God should call them saints. What a challenging thought, friends, that as Christians... We are only ever British or Irish or whatever ish you like. We are only ever that second. And first and foremost, we are holy ones, set apart servants of Jesus Christ. The world will have one set of values and standards and concerns. And perhaps with some of that, we can agree and we can accept. But there will be much in our world, much in our immediate culture or nation from which we have to separate ourselves. 
There are many things that are perfectly accepted and legal in the United Kingdom and Ireland that the Christian can have nothing to do with. Gambling, drunkenness, various casual attitudes to sexuality. More subtly, perhaps, a lot of the content of what's celebrated in music or film or social media. Christians can have nothing to do with a lot of it because we're set apart. Boys and girls, young adults, there are multiple times when you will find that you have to set yourself apart literally, physically, from the places that your peers go to or the things that your peers do or say or celebrate. There are times when a Christian employee has to set themselves apart from the practices of the business or the employer because we serve a different master. We have a different identity. We are saints, set apart ones. There's a real sense, friends, in which we're not British or Irish, but we are the saints who are in Britain or Ireland or wherever we find ourselves. Boys and girls, you're not a Rathfryland or a University of Ulster or a Dromore Primary School student. If you're a Christian, you're the saints who are at Jordanstown or Banbridge or Rathfryland or Dromore. In the world, but not belonging to the world and often not like the world. What impact does it have in your life, friend, to know that you are a saint, that you're set apart for Jesus Christ? Does it change your perspective on our country with all its identity politics that are going nuts today and all the problems and divisions we see? Does it give you joy to know that in the midst of a chaotic and confused and cynical world, Christ Jesus has set you apart, saved you, changed you, put his mark upon you as we thought a few months ago in Revelation and that you have an inheritance that is far better than anything this world has to offer. As proud and as excited as Philippians were about their identity in Rome or as proud as people may be about whatever label they put upon themselves in our culture today, how much more thankful and joyful and content should we be that our identity is saints in Jesus Christ. So the author of this letter, uh, a servant of Christ Jesus, the recipients of this letter, saints in Christ Jesus. And then Paul's greeting in this letter, grace and peace from Christ Jesus. Grace and peace from Christ Jesus. Look what he says in verse 2. Verse 2, sorry. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace is Paul's favourite way of beginning his letters. Perhaps because those two words so perfectly sum up the, the experience, if you like, of the Christian life. The Christian life is all about grace and peace. We speak about God's grace all the time. We sing about it in the Psalms. Steadfast, loving kindness, mercy. Those are words that... Often in the Psalter, they're the same as grace. Grace is how the Christian life can begin. It's only by grace that we're saved. We'll see this as we come to look at the life of Abraham and the call of Abraham in a couple of weeks' time. That God simply shows up in Abraham's life. He's not a godly man himself. He's not part of a godly family. He hadn't done anything to earn God's love. God simply shows up and shows him his love. And it's been the same for all of us, friends. 
God by his grace has called us and made us his children. Grace is how the Christian life begins. It's also how the Christian life continues. Grace fuels the Christian life we might say. We still have sinned to battle and confess each day. And when we do we find fresh grace when we need it. And having received grace ourselves, it should also, of course, mark our relationships with others. Marriages need grace. Parenting needs grace. Our interactions with fellow church members need grace. Our message to the world outside these walls is grace. Undeserved, unmerited love. Grace defines the Christian life. An ungracious Christian is a contradiction in terms. Then the other word that Paul uses is the word peace. Uh, Jewish people and even secular Greek people in Paul's day would have greeted each other regularly with this word peace. And even today, you know, people still sort of casually say, oh, peace. Uh, But of course, the peace that Paul is talking about here is peace with God. So much more. I mean, in Northern Ireland context, peace just means the absence of violence. In the Bible, peace means far more than that. It's everything in harmony, you might say. It's everything between us and God, perfect, a perfect relationship with God, perfect relationships with one another, perfect relationships with the world, even with creation. Paul says in Romans 5, 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through the work that he has done to reconcile us with God. And so friends, in greeting the Philippians with the words grace and peace, Paul is summing up how the Christian life is possible. It's possible because of grace. And what the Christian life produces, it produces a sense of peace, of real felt peace between us and God. We live in a world, of course, lacking in both grace and peace. There's not much grace in the way that political opponents talk about one another. (coughs) There's not much grace shown in social media interactions between people. There's not much sign of peace in the lives of men and women around us who are broken and anxious and afraid and troubled. And yet Paul says peace is the Christian experience. He's, He's saying to these believers, this is the life that you have This is the life that you can enjoy in an even greater measure. These are the things you need to remember about what God has done for you. You have grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, friends, how Paul exalts Jesus there. He is emphasizing the, the divinity of Jesus here. He's saying that God the Son, the Lord Jesus, is on a par with God the Father. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal as God together. In a sense here already, Paul is he is diverting the, the, the eyes of the Philippians away from Caesar. Caesar is Lord. That was the slogan of Philippi. And Paul is saying, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's the one who can provide for all of your needs far better than Caesar can. Paul had planted this church. He had preached the gospel. He had called people to repentance. Not in the name of some impressive man or rebellious revolutionary. But in the name of Jesus Christ. God who became a man. And who sacrificed himself in the supreme act of grace. So that we could have peace 
with God. And when Paul calls the Philippians to perseverance in this letter, he does it in the name of this God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he calls them to mend their divisions between each other and unite together, he will do it in the name of Jesus Christ. When he calls them later in the letter to give generously to the work of the gospel, he calls them to do that in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, friends, is the the heartbeat of this letter. You, You can't go, even if you scan your eye over it this afternoon, You can't go more than a verse or two without seeing that name of Jesus Christ. He's diverting the eyes of the Philippians away from their beautiful city and away from the pagan religions of their city and away from the Caesar who ruled over their city to the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate ruler of our world. And he's reminding them that as they live set apart lives in Philippi, it's grace by which they live And it's grace that they're to go out and preach. And those three conversions that we read about earlier in Acts chapter 16, they bear witness to the fact, friends, that no matter who you are, or no matter who the people are that we're trying to reach with the gospel, the same grace can save any of them. Think of Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman, interested in religious things, we're told in Acts 16. And God opened her heart to receive the gospel. God's grace saved Lydia. Then there was that demon-possessed girl who we can only assume as well was converted after Paul cast that demon out of her. Afflicted by evil in the most horrible way, God's grace was enough to save her. The Roman, or the Philippian jailer, a brutal man no doubt to have that job, God's grace was enough to save him. And isn't that encouraging for us friends today? We might think, look at all the obstacles Look at all the problems that people are facing today. Look at how people are suppressing the truth of the gospel. God's grace is enough to save any one of them. Enough to save you if you haven't yet put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's grace and peace, friends, was what had united together the members of this church in Philippi. And God's grace and peace is what unites us together as a congregation today as well. No matter how different we may be in personality or temperament, temperament, likes or dislikes, hobbies or interests, from the person next to us or from the family next to us, we are united here today by the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace and peace is enough to fuel our lives and fuel our witness Until the day that we see our Saviour face to face. Maybe as this year begins there are monumental challenges looming in your life. Personal, work related, health related. Maybe there's a sense of distance between you and your Saviour. You've perhaps allowed worldly attitudes or worldly distractions to stunt your growth in Christ. Well, Friends, Paul's greeting at the start of this letter reminds us today of the fundamentals of our lives. We're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're set apart saints, called to live holy lives in an unholy world. And we're to press on in that task with joy, remembering that God's grace and peace will be with us now and always. Amen.